Hello and welcome to all of you old friends as well as all of you new ones. My name is Jared Halverson and this is Unshaken, a podcast where we study scripture, hopefully in ways that you never have before. Now for you returning listeners, you longtime listeners, and by that I do mean long time. <laughs> We've been at this for almost four years now and with 646 hours of content behind us, I hope that you're ready for some changes. First of all, you may notice that I'm not in my typical white shirt. I'm opting for blue this time around. And we may see some other wardrobe changes as well as background changes because we're going to be shifting our scenery. For the last few years, I've been borrowing my wife's little home office. And my wife and children have been tiptoeing outside the door on, on, silent on the set. And yet, as I mentioned in a recent update episode, this year we are beginning a beautiful partnership with the Faith Matters Foundation, and they're going to be providing some production help as well as a recording studio. And so prepare yourself for some changes moving forward. The biggest one of which will probably be the length of these episodes. Those who have grown accustomed to three, four, five, even seven and a half hour episodes, that was our record. From now on, we're aiming for around an hour. Uh, hoping that it can be more digestible on the, on the run for those that have less time on their hands. Uh, those of you who are hoping for more, there is so much incredible content out there. And so now you may have time to, to hear from some of my colleagues as well. Now, for you new listeners, new friends, I'm sure we will get to know each other as time goes on. But by way of brief introduction, I grew up in Texas and Southern California, uh, away from the, the Mormon corridor, as it's often been called and surrounded by friends that were both diverse and devout in their religious views. It gave me a very expansive view of truth and goodness and a healthy helping of holy envy for those that don't share my beliefs, but do share my desire to live good lives and reach heavenward. As I went to uh, Puerto Rico on my mission and learned of amazing people seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ change them for the better, I came home and began teaching at the Missionary Training Center completed a bachelor's degree in history at Brigham Young University and met, well, I would call her the girl of my dreams, but as I admitted to her at the time, I couldn't dream that good. But I did marry someone far beyond me, and since then we have had five children that now range in age from 22 down to 14. Now, educationally, after a bachelor's in history, I continued with a master's in religious education and then began teaching seminary and institute for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that career of religious education has spanned the last 25 years. For part of it, a good eight-year block, we were in Nashville, Tennessee, running the seminary and institute program there. And it was there at Vanderbilt University that I received a second master's in American religious history and then a PhD in the same subject, specializing in secularization, faith loss, anti-religious rhetoric, all the hateful things that people say to try to rob one another of their faith. Uh, scriptural reception and rejection history, it was an incredible experience being the token Latter-day Saint at a, a very liberal divinity school. And to be able to learn how to navigate that and to handle controversial issues and to, to again, learn with people of other faiths uh, the glorious things that God has been revealing to his children from the very beginning. With that experience as my educational background, I eventually returned to Utah where I taught, for, uh, taught at the University of Utah for eight years. And for the past two, I have been at BYU, my old alma mater, teaching religion classes to the rising generation and absolutely loving it. Uh, 
Now, I have found, uh, ironically, well, actually, actually, there's no irony here. Uh, it was prophesied it would be this way, that because of the shaking of faith that is taking place in the last days, and the Lord himself said that this would be one of the defining signs of the times, I have found that my educational background has been incredibly helpful as I have worked with people around the, around the world who are experiencing faith crisis, wrestling with difficult questions and controversial issues and trying to find a reason for the hope that is in them, or at least once was. Uh, I hope that I will have time to be able to reach out to many of you in a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation if you are struggling so that we can, we can go on this journey together. But this leads me to the, the creation of this channel four years ago. I called it Unshaken. Uh, we began it the day after an earthquake rocked Salt Lake City. I didn't cause that earthquake. It wasn't my fault. Uh, but maybe it was my Southern California background that, that brought, oh, that relevance to what we were trying to accomplish on this channel. And that's to help steady the shaken and be able to give them a hand in holding fast to the iron rod so they could continue their journey forward. That's what we will be doing uh, as we continue our study this year. And this year, the book that we will be spending our attention on is the Book of Mormon. Now, that's where we began four years ago. And I couldn't be happier to renew our acquaintance with this keystone scripture. In fact, one of my favorite songs in primary as a child was Book of Mormon stories that my teacher told to me, complete with hand signals. And as amazing as the stories in the Book of Mormon are, to me, the greatest Book of Mormon stories are the ones that involve you and me. That's the power of Scripture, that it draws us in and changes us through the process of study. And so, yes, we will be spending time with Nephi and Lehi and Alma and Abish and Samuel the Lamanite and so forth. But really, the scriptural figures that I'm most fascinated by are the ones studying the Scripture. So scriptural reception history and rejection history is close to my heart. Uh, and I am very interested to see the effect that the Book of Mormon will have on your life and mine as we study it together this year. Speaking of Book of Mormon stories, can I tell you one? This one was a friend of mine that grew up in Southern California outside the church. His favorite things to do were surfing, playing baseball, and swing dancing. And at one of those swing dances, he met a Latter-day Saint girl. And they hit it off and ended up going on a first date that she spent telling him the Book of Mormon story and the Joseph Smith story. I mean, what else are you going to do on a first date, right? Well, by the end of the date, he dropped her off and drove home thinking to himself, either that girl is crazy or there's something to that story, she said. And I really hope there's something to the story because I kind of like her and I hope she's not crazy. Well, he couldn't sleep that night, couldn't stop thinking about her, but more importantly, couldn't stop thinking about the stories she told. And so he called her at like 2 a.m., and woke her up and said, that book you were telling me about, I need a copy. And she said, okay, come by in the morning and I'll give it to you. And he said, no, I need it right now. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. I know. I'll see you at 2.15. And he hung up. He jumped in his truck and drove across town. And there, bleary-eyed, she handed him a copy of the Book of Mormon, which he drove home with, facing up on his passenger seat. Felt like it was staring at him, he said. And so, figuring it was probably going to be a long night, he pulled into a 7-Eleven, bought himself a pack of cigarettes, and smoked and read for the rest of the night. Now, by the time he was done with the Book of Mormon, he was long since done with the cigarettes. Long since done with an old life, and he had found hope for a new beginning. He ended up joining the church, marrying that girl in the Los Angeles temple, 
and it's been quite a story for them ever since. Good, good friends of ours. It's actually interesting to compare that to another Book of Mormon story that's near and dear to my heart about a young woman that was raised in a staunch, faithful family, complete with family Book of Mormon study without fail. But the failure came when she decided she didn't want to be a part of this and slowly pulled herself away from the faith of her fathers. And by the time she was done with high school, she was done with the church, done with God, done with everything, moved away to go to a party school in Northern California and begin a new life as far away from her old one as possible. Well, she couldn't get away from a brother of hers that she was so close to. And when he returned from his mission in Italy, she found him just, she found herself drawn by his unconditional love just to return home long enough to be there for his missionary homecoming. Well, he decided to turn that, or at least attempt to turn it into a much longer relationship because he said to this beloved younger sister of his, you know, I'm moving back to Utah to go to school. Why don't you come with me? And she said, are you crazy? I've got my own life. It's the middle of a semester. I have a job. I've got a life there. And he said, I know, but let's, let's, start, a, let's start a new one over. You and me, we could be roommates. We'll just, we were best friends growing up. We can be best friends again. And I don't care where you've been and what you've done. I know who you are. Just come and let's begin again. And unable to resist his unconditional openness. She found herself dropping out of school and quitting her job and moving to Utah where she had nothing else to do but dust off an old copy of the Book of Mormon, wondering why it was such a big deal to her parents. Well, ever since then, she's never allowed the Book of Mormon to collect dust since. And I would know because I married her. And I'm amazed at her conversion story, her reconversion, all because of the pages of the Book of Mormon. Again, Book of Mormon stories that my teacher tells to me, I'd rather hear the Book of Mormon stories that you can tell to your teacher, the ones that involve you as starring character. Having just finished a semester of Book of Mormon study with my own students at BYU, I ask them at the end of a semester, send me an email describing your own spiritual growth over the last four months. I challenge them. In fact, since it's part of their grade, I can require them. I challenge them to spend a half an hour every day in the Book of Mormon. And over the course of four months, it's amazing to watch the change that occurs in their lives, not because of what I've taught them, but because of what they've learned and the experiences they've had in the pages of this magnificent scripture. They tell me Book of Mormon stories, and they are inspiring. My prayer for all of us over the course of this year is that we will receive a power that we've never felt before, or perhaps that we haven't felt in a long, long time. I imagine many of you, like me, could use an increase of power in our lives. Power to accomplish what we cannot do on our own. Power to change. Power to understand things more deeply. Power to reach those that we feel like might, we might be losing. If you are in need of greater power, then prepare to receive it. Because we have a prophet's promise that it will come as soon as we begin studying this book of scripture in a serious way. 
This statement comes from Ezra Taft Benson, who was my prophet as a, as a teenager. He dusted off the Book of Mormon for the entire church, and blessed be his name for it. But he said this, and this is a quote that I hope will be engraven in the fleshy tables of your heart. This amazing Book of Mormon prophet in the latter days said, There is a power in the book which will begin to flow into your lives the moment you begin a serious study of the book. Can you sense the urgency here? The moment, snap your finger, if you're ready for greater power to flow into your life, then right now can begin that process. Right now can be the moment when everything starts to change. The way President Benson described it was threefold. You will find greater power to resist temptation. You will find the power to avoid deception. And you will find the power to stay on the straight and narrow path. Those are three things that do require power. Power far above what we can muster within ourselves. Divine power, also known as grace. And so the power to resist temptation. My wife works in addiction recovery. And you have to be able to tap into a power source that is stronger than the pull and tug of your addiction. If you need greater power to resist temptation, then prepare to study the Book of Mormon. The power to avoid deception, as I said, that was the defining sign of the times as described by Jesus himself. The deception of the very elect according to the covenant and so for us to be able to see through the mists of darkness, for us to be able to overcome deception and recognize truth for what it really is, then that power will begin to flow as we begin this study as well. And then finally, the power to stay on the straight and narrow path. We seem to be faltering in our faith, so many of us. I hardly ever meet people who don't have at least some loved ones who are straying from that straight and narrow path. And yet if we want to help them get to the tree of life and partake of its glorious fruit, then it's the iron rod that will get them there. And so here we have a chance to begin tapping into this divine power source. There are so many other promises that people like President Benson or Mary G. Romney or more recently Russell M. Nelson have given us that will come into our lives if we will study this keystone text. So are you ready for the moment? Are you ready to snap those fingers and begin the process of inviting power into your life? Then may we begin a serious study of this book of Scripture. Before we even start, I bear you my witness. Having read this book probably a hundred times in my life, I testify of its profound power. I testify of its, its purpose and its process in getting us there. I testify not only that the Book of Mormon is true, but more importantly, that the Book of Mormon works, that it does what it is intended to do, and we will begin seeing its divine intention very quickly. What I'm hoping that we can start with, though, and again, we're going to try to leave, uh, leave time for you to do some more personal study on your own. Uh, in the three to four to five hour version, I don't know how much opportunity you had to study on your own. You were just listening to me all the time. Uh, and so I'm hoping that you will take what we discuss together and that it will inspire you to enter the text individually and independently. I'm amazed at what God can teach his children when we give him a chance. 
for my own students, I don't assign them readings. I don't say these are the chapters you have to master to keep up with us in class. I tell them a half an hour a day wherever the Spirit leads you. And if it leads you down a path of a single phrase and you spend your entire half an hour there, oh, teach me the phrase when you're done. This is real scripture study. It is time more than text. It is depth more than distance. And if we can give God his due, if we can prove to him how seriously we take his words, then the windows of heaven will open and he will pour out revelation like you've never experienced. I testify of that as well. So let's begin. Now what I want to do is set the stage. In this very first week of Come Follow Me study, we are not technically in the text yet. Well, with the exception of the title page. The title page does come from the hand of Moroni, and so we do have an ancient prophet writing to us there. But so much of what we're doing this first week is all preliminary and preparatory. Uh, hopefully it's, it sets the stage and, and draws back the bowstring so that next week when we meet Nephi uh, and begin 1 Nephi chapter 1, we will come out flying. Okay, that's the hope. But to begin, to set the stage, we are going to be studying some of these preliminary uh, messages. We are going to be seeing the title page of the Book of Mormon, the introduction to the Book of Mormon, the, the testimony of Joseph Smith, as well as the testimony of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. This is what is given us this week for our Come Follow Me curriculum. But I want to introduce you to someone, an early church member that you may not be familiar with, and his name is Orson Spencer. Now, the reason I begin with him is because I want... This is the book that we'll be, that we'll be spending our time in, okay? The 2013 edition of the Book of Mormon. But I want you to picture getting one of these, which was the 1830 edition. Imagine if... Oh, you heard a knock on your cabin door somewhere on the American frontier, that early 19th century, and you, set, you saw a stranger outside the door that pulled out of his knapsack a book just like this one and said that it was a gift from God that was meant to prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Bold claim for a frontier missionary. Would you give him the time of day? Would you accept a copy of this book? Or would you reject them out of hand because of rumors you'd already heard or stories you'd already read about in the newspaper? You see, years ago, I wrote a master's thesis on the early rejection history of the Book of Mormon. And what I did for this was I read every newspaper article I could find from 1829 till 1844, when Joseph Smith died, describing the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. You see, the penny press was spreading far and wide in the early 19th century. Uh, press was cheap, technology was, was improving, and practically everybody wanted to put out a shingle and start a, a printing press or a newspaper. Many of the editors at the time, unfortunately, were religious skeptics, and they used the power of the press to try to push back the power of the pulpit. Uh, it was a competition going on, a, a, tug, a, a tug of war between faith and doubt at that time period. Uh, you, you hear, you, you still read this, the messages of Thomas Paine, for example. Uh, he was the patron saint of skepticism in early America. Uh, a doubting Thomas, like, like Americans had never read before. And people were really wrestling with their belief in the Bible, or their belief in God. 
And so onto the scene comes a story about a gold Bible and angels that have come back to earth and some frontier prophet who was translating by the gift and power of God. Now, to an audience in the effulgent glow of the American Enlightenment, that sounded ludicrous. And the way that newspaper editors, skeptical for the most part, described that made it all the harder to believe that any of these things could even be possible. What struck me most from that study was newspaper article after newspaper article, they seemed to reduce the story of the Book of Mormon to the absurd in hopes that people would dismiss it out of hand without even opening the book to see what was inside. There is provenance and then there is product. Provenance is where things come from. Product is what's actually in front of you on the page. And I was amazed at how infrequently anyone actually cracked the book open to see what was written inside. They couldn't get past the stories surrounding it. Again, like we're studying this week, the the testimonies of the three and eight witnesses, the story that Joseph Smith tells of how he received the gold plates to begin with, the ministering of angels in his life, Urim and Thummim and all of these things that a skeptical audience simply could not swallow. And so what do they do? They make it a knee-jerk reaction to ridicule. If you think about those in the great and spacious building that mocked and pointed the finger, and that's what led people to leave the iron rod and even drop the fruit that they had just partaken of. That seems to be the adversary's modus operandi. It's what he does. And so to see that happening on the pages of the penny press in the 19th century, I am astonished that any of our ancestors could get over that initial reaction. The first impression that most people would have had before any missionary knocked on their cabin door would have been decidedly negative. And so the picture of Samuel Smith offering you a copy of the book his brother had just translated, most people would have simply laughed in his face and said, you didn't get it? This was all a joke. And now the joke's on you. And you become the butt of ridicule and scorn. I'm, like I said, I'm amazed that any of our ancestors could get past that and actually open the book and see what was written therein. That's what amazes me most about this man I want to introduce you to, namely Orson Spencer. Now, what amazes me about him is that he was so well-educated, far more than most early converts to the church. He grew up in New England. He had been a, a Baptist minister. He was the valedictorian at the theological school where he went to study the Bible and very, very well respected because he was so well educated. Well, he heard the stories. He'd, well, he'd heard all those stories, the knee-jerk reaction, and yet convinced by someone close to him to at least try, crack the book open and see what's inside, it started to change everything for him. He ended up joining the church in 1841. Moving to Nauvoo, he became, he was appointed the very first chancellor, if you want to call it that, of the University of Nauvoo. 
as it was trying to get underfoot or underway. And when he, when the saints moved west, eventually, after having served several missions in Europe, he was named the very first chancellor of the University of, De- of Deseret, what became the University of Utah. Again, incredibly well educated and admired by his Baptist congregations up until the point where he left them to join this upstart sect, the Latter-day Saints. Now, there is a fascinating letter that he wrote to an old friend of his in response to that friend's petition, explain to me and to all of us, how on earth did you get duped into this belief of gold Bibles and stone spectacles and and angels talking to, to plowboys? We thought you were smarter than that, Orson. And Orson's response is a very long letter that was later published in the Times and Seasons in Nauvoo. It's a masterpiece of explanation. It is a a peek into how the minds and hearts of early converts, especially those that had the courage to face the calumny, that had the, the conviction to be able to stand up in the face of ridicule. It's a very long letter. And I love the whole thing, but I'm just going to share four statements from what he said uh, by way of introduction to what we're going to be studying this year. In explanation of his conversion, he wrote, The Spirit of God wrought mightily in me, commending the ancient gospel to my conscience. And it was that ancient gospel he found in the pages of the Book of Mormon, that he found in the revelations of the prophet Joseph Smith. This was not some new upstart. This was the ancient gospel. And the Spirit of God commended it to him. I contemplated it with peaceful serenity and joy in believing. Visions and dreams began to illuminate occasionally my slumbering moments. But, he said, when I allowed my selfish propensities to speak, I cursed Mormonism in my heart and regretted being in possession of as much light and knowledge as had flowed into my mind from that source. Do you get a sense of him being the rope in this tug of war and being pulled in one direction by the Spirit of God himself, but being yanked back in the other by his cares for what people would think of him. I will lose everything. I will lose all respectability. I will become the butt of their ridicule. In fact, he already had been. But what was he to do? Curse Mormonism? and leave behind what he knew from God was true? Later he said, I counted the cost to myself and my family of embracing such views until I could read it like the child his alphabet, either upward or downward. You understand what he's saying there? A child that is reviewing his letters until he knows them inside and outside, upwards and down. He knew the cost of this conversion. He knew what it would mean for him. It was constantly on his mind. He said, The expense I viewed through unavoidable tears, both in public and private, by night and by day. I said, however, The Lord, He is God. I can, I will embrace the truth. And so he did. But as he described to his old Baptist friend the process of his investigation, I'm amazed at how seriously he took things. Again, he's so well educated. He does not want to be duped. He said, while I was inquiring to know what the Lord would have me to do, many brethren of different denominations warned and exhorted me faithfully. 
But their warnings consisted very much in a lively exhibition of evils to be endured if I persisted. Or in other words, they appealed to my selfish nature. Ah, this is interesting self-awareness on the part of Orson Spencer. They are just trying to scare me out of my faith. They want to shock and awe me into thinking, oh, the, the price that must be paid if you follow this new group. No, it's worth it to just stay here with us and continue your respectable ministry. But Orson Spencer considered that selfish on his part, self-centered. He said, I knew too well that truth should not be abandoned through the force of such appeals. However eloquently urged, some with whom I conversed gave glowing descriptions of the obnoxious character of Joseph Smith and of the contradictory and unscriptural jargon of the Book of Mormon. But it was their misfortune usually to be deplorably ignorant of the true characters of either. You see what he's saying there? He realized what I learned in that, in that study, that people are talking about the story behind the scripture, but they're not reading the scripture them, themselves. It's, it's rumor with her thousand tongues scaring people out of an honest investigation. That has been happening ever since. And the internet has only multiplied those tongues of rumor far beyond the original thousand. Honestly, if you have been bombarded by other people's opinions of the Book of Mormon, perhaps now's your chance to silence the maddening crowd and approach the text as if it were a brand new experience for you. Oh, it was a, it's, a, it's a modern actress, very famous, I won't drop her name, but she once said that the problem with being famous is you can no longer give people first impressions. Before they meet you, they assume they know you. And that's definitely the case with the Book of Mormon. The way it was initially framed by skeptical editors gave the world a negative first impression of the text. And it's one that the Book of Mormon has not yet been able to overcome. Just go ask a certain Tony award-winning Broadway musical. And again, it is still the butt of ridicule, as it's always been. But to try it, to get past our ignorant first impressions, or even if you think you know the text, and it has, and for whatever reason, you have pulled away from faith in it, I challenge you to try what Orson Spencer did and approach it as if you were seeing it for the first time. Now, one of the things that, Spen that Orson Spencer did fascinates me, especially as a student of anti-Mormonism myself. In this letter, he, he said this. This is the last of the quotes that I'll share with you, although there are so many more that I wish we had time for. He said, I read diligently the Book of Mormon from beginning to end, and I would challenge us all to do the same thing this year. But he said this, I read it in close connection with the comments of Origen Batchelor, Leroy Sunderland, and Dr. Hurlbut, together with newspapers and some private letters obtained from the surviving friends of Mr. Spaulding, the supposed author of that book. Now, some of you may know some of those names. They're all well familiar to me because those were the names of the most popular or some of the most popular anti-Mormons in the early period. Origen Batchelor and Leroy Sunderland and Dr. Hurlbut had all written exposés to try to paint 
a picture of early Mormonism in the most negative possible hues. The Solomon, the Mr. Spalding he mentions here is Solomon Spalding of Spalding theory fame. And the idea that this book is far too complicated for an uneducated farm boy to write, so Joseph must have somehow collaborated with someone else. He must have plagiarized this, stolen a manuscript. And what's fascinating to me, again, one who studies anti-religious rhetoric, having studied the writings of these anti-Mormons myself, it's fascinating to picture Orson Spencer with Book of Mormon in one hand and exposés of Mormonism in the other and trying to make sense of the two. He went on, I arose from its perusal with a strong conviction on my mind that its pages were graced with the pen of inspiration. I was surprised that so little fault could be found with a book of such magnitude, treating as it did of such diversified subjects through a period of so many generations. It appeared to me that no enemy to truth or godliness would ever take the least interest in publishing the contents of such a book. Such appeared to me to be its godly bearing, sound morality, and harmony with ancient scriptures, that the enemy of all righteousness might as well proclaim the dissolution of his own kingdom as to spread the contents of such a volume among men. You see what he's saying there? Like, man, if the devil inspired this book, boy, he shot himself in the foot. Because it pulls people away from him, not toward. It teaches light, not darkness. What a, a, a kingdom divide, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if the devil wrote this book, then he's destroying his own best efforts. He finished this paragraph with this incredible statement. From that time to this, so since his initial introduction to the book and his subsequent study of it, every effort made by its enemies to demolish has only shown how invincible a fortress defends it. And I am amazed by the invincibility of the fortress of faith. Having studied so much of what people have said against the Book of Mormon, from its initial, actually that's the irony, anti-Mormonism precedes Mormonism. And anti-Book of Mormon articles appeared before the Book of Mormon did. Oh, there's a long life there. And having studied it in the 19th century, as well as continuing to study what is being produced right now in the 21st, I will still stand by this scriptural text. And I'm amazed by its invincibility. There is something powerful here. And my honest hope for us all, wherever you happen to be on the spectrum, if you are a lifelong believer, and it, can't, it doesn't even make sense to you how anyone could doubt the Book of Mormon, or on the other side, if you are a lifelong skeptic, if you are curious about this book, but want to avoid conviction, welcome. Wherever you happen to be, just come. Come and see. Come and read. Don't take my word for any of this. But as we study together, please know that I am not going to try to force my beliefs on anyone. I will simply point out some of the places where I have found light and truth pouring forth from the pages of the Book of Mormon. I will aim for application and relevance. I want to establish oh, historical context. I want to 
equip you so that you can enter the text in, in an informed way. I want to plant some seeds of curiosity so that you can study things and, and begin to interrogate the text in a dialogue rather than a monologue. Not just it speaking to you or you speaking at it, but rather con conversation that hopefully will in, include God himself and open the heavens so that you can see what this book is intended to make of you. Oh, there's, there's something incredible awaiting us. And so, with the help of Orson Spencer cheering us on from the grave, uh, so many saints and skeptics pulling on this book and trying to convince people one way or the other how to respond to it, uh, again, may we get past the stories surrounding its coming forth and enter its pages directly to see what it has to say to us. An incredible adventure awaits us all and an incredible infusion of power if we go about this study in the right way. Now, as we open the book, and we see it at the, on the first page of the Book of Mormon, and on the, in the 1830 edition, it's the very first thing they would have seen as well. It's the title page. And this title page, the Book of Mormon, an account written by the hand of Mormon upon plates taken from the plates of Nephi. Oh, strange names. Who are these people? Well, we're going to find out. But this title page is short enough, it's worth reading everything on it. Two paragraphs is all we have. But take it phrase by phrase, and especially as you're studying this at home or with loved ones, try to understand, again, erase your memory of the book and come at this as if it was a first impression. Here's the first paragraph. Wherefore, it is an abridgment of the record of the people of Nephi, and also of the Lamanites. Now, again, I don't know who those people are. I don't have any idea what this book is about yet. But now I'm learning who it's directed to. And there's three target audiences, two of whom I do know. It's written to the Lamanites, who are a remnant of the house of Israel. Oh, so that starts to explain where they come from. And also to Jew and Gentile. Hmm. Dividing the religious world based on their biblical background. This book is intended for them. Imagine what each one of these three groups would get out of the Book of Mormon where the Lamanites would see their own history unfold, where the Jews would see the story of a branch of the house of Israel that had been scattered, but had been promised to be gathered home again. And the Gentiles, what are they to receive from this? Well, this was a book that was given to them that was intended for others. It was merely passing through Gentile hands so that the Gentiles could return it to the house of Israel to whom it was addressed. But they would be gathered in in the process. Keep reading. This was written by way of commandment and also by the spirit of prophecy and of revelation. And if it was written that way, then I would suggest that it be read that way too. Can we read this by way of commandment? Can we sense that God wants us with all his heart to Enter this conversation with him through the pages of this scripture. So read by way of commandment. Read by way of prophecy and revelation. The spirit of prophecy, according to the book of Revelation, is the testimony of Jesus. And so to read this book, looking for testimonies of Christ, you will see it on every page. This book is so 
saturated in the Savior. You cannot help coming away from it knowing that its intent is to point you to Jesus. So read it with the spirit of prophecy and read it with the spirit of revelation. Revelation whereby God can speak to you, opening the eyes of your understanding to know the true meaning and intention of the passages that we will see on the page. That's how it was written. That is how it must be read. It was written and sealed up and hid up unto the Lord that they might not be destroyed. Hmm. So from the very beginning, this book has had its enemies. And no, that has not changed. But it was meant to come forth by the gift and power of God unto the interpretation thereof. Sealed by the hand of Moroni and hid up unto the Lord to come forth in due time by way of the Gentile. The interpretation thereof by the gift of God. Interesting they use the word interpretation rather than translation. And there's a difference there worth wrestling with. I was once speaking in a large group and there were members of the deaf community that were in the audience. And so it was being translated in ASL. After it was over, I turned to the, the translators and said to them, man, I am so sorry you had to translate for me because I speak a mile a minute. That was probably hard. And they said, actually, the more words, the better, because it gives us a sense of what you're trying to say. And then we have more to work with as we're saying it in different ways to our audience. Because the other thing you need to know is we're not translators. That's not what we're called. We're called interpreters. And all of a sudden, I saw the Book of Mormon in a new light. The interpretation. The Urim and Thummim that you know, King Mosiah had, for example, they called it the interpreters. And so I'm trying to make sense of something. I'm not so chained to literal words on the page. But there's a spirit here. There's a message here. And how do I interpret it in such a way that a new audience can make sense of it? in the way that it was intended. If it's being interpreted by the gift and power of God, then we better be praying for those gifts and tapping into those powers. If it's a gift for us to understand the messages that we'll be studying, if we can try to understand with the help of the Holy Ghost, not only was, what do these words mean, but what do they mean to us? Yes, there is a world behind the text, and there is a world within it, but there is a world in front of the text, and that's the world you and I occupy. And so again, Book of Mormon stories that we're going to be saying with ourselves as starring, as starring figures, may we interpret these things by the gift and power of God. The second paragraph it might be even more amazing, because now we start to see purpose behind the plates. It's an abridgment taken from the book of Ether also, which is a record of the people of Jared who were scattered at the time the Lord confounded the language of the people when they were building a tower to get to heaven. We see that story in Genesis chapter 11 in the Bible or in the book of Ether, which we'll get to at the end of our year of Book of Mormon study. But notice the purpose of all of this. All of this so far has been lead up. This is what the, you know, it contains. These are our target audiences, but these are now are the intended purposes of this book. Number one, which is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers. You want to see the hand of God in the lives of other people that might make it more recognizable in your own life 
then pay close attention to the great things that God has done. You will be amazed at Him, His love, His tender mercy, His kindness, His power. So pay close attention to that. Number two, that they may know the covenants of the Lord, that they are not cast off forever. The reintroduction of covenant language There is so much power in knowing that God has promised to be there for us and to be reminded of a covenant relationship that we might fear has been frayed. Oh no, we are not cast off forever. In fact, if this is intended for the Lamanites, if there were ever a group of people that might feel cast off and forgotten, In fact, if there were ever a group of people that Moroni himself would want to cast off and cast away, it's the Lamanites. And yet, no, Moroni writes writes this to that audience with the reassurance by way of Abrahamic covenant. Covenants to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the house of Israel, the scattered remnant, you are not forgotten. You have not been abandoned by a God who still knows you and wants to be known of you. To anyone who has felt cast off themselves, if you feel that God has forsaken or forgotten you, perhaps because at some point you've forgotten or forsaken him, then this book is giving you divine reassurance as well. With covenant commitment that this is a relationship that God is fully invested in. You are not cast off forever, no matter what you've done or how far you've gone. The Book of Mormon will reassure you of that if you let it. It's one of its stated purposes from the very first page. And then the greatest of them all, the third. And also to the convincing, and that's a powerful word. As one who studies rhetoric, the power of persuasion, convincing power is what this book is trying to muster. It isn't just suggesting. It isn't just offering a a feeble hope. It is intended to convince you of a certain thing that will change everything in life. This is for the convincing of both Jew and Gentile, and that includes everyone, that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. That's what this book is meant to accomplish. If you're not quite sure about Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon, fine, no problem at all. Those are minor issues compared to the major challenge and question you have to come to answer. And that regards Jesus Christ. Is he the savior of the world? And by that, I mean the world, all nations. Does he love the world enough to manifest himself to sheep and other sheep, wherever those, that fold might be? This book brings with it persuasive power, convincing conviction of Jesus Christ. And when all is said and done, 531 pages from now, the deepest prayer of every prophet who wrote these pages will be that you have come to know Jesus Christ, that you are included among the nations to whom he wants to manifest himself. If you're not yet sure about that, 
then prepare for a power to flow into your life as we begin this serious study. Now, there's a part of me that wishes Moroni had stopped right there, period. That's what the book is for. But as we'll come to know Moroni in about 12 months from now, oh, there was a sense of inadequacy that he felt deeply and worried that, that we might not get past his own human inadequacy. He talks about this several times in both the Book of Mormon as well as the Book of Ether. But here on the title page itself, he ends with this disclaimer. And now, if there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. Wherefore, condemn not the things of God, that ye may be found spotless at the judgment seat of Christ. And then he puts his period and puts the pen down. The judgment seat. Oh, he's putting this in eternal perspective, isn't he? But did you catch his admission? If there are faults here, don't blame God. Blame me. Blame my father. Blame imperfect humans, not a perfect God. Now, with all the interfaith work that I do, and again, having spent so much time in the Bible Belt, and not just anywhere, but in Nashville, Tennessee, there's all kinds of cities in the South that claim to be the buckle of the Bible Belt, but only one of them is also known as the Protestant Vatican, and that's Nashville. Having been surrounded for eight years there by very, very strong evangelical Christians, some of whom knew enough of the Book of Mormon to try to dismiss it, I had a few conversations with people that pointed out that phrase and said, your own book shoots itself in the foot on the very first page. You haven't even gotten into the text yet, and it's already saying that it's imperfect. Now, they saw that as a weakness, that admission. And yet it's one of the Book of Mormon's great strengths because it's admitting to us all from the very beginning that this book will have divine and human fingerprints all over the page. And in some ways that makes it even more true to form for us. Because boy, are there human fingerprints in my past and my present. But it's amazing to watch the fingerprints of God as he tries to reach out to shape and to mold and to fix me, to refashion me after his image. Are there faults in me? Yes. Are there mistakes? Yes, but they're mine. And to see that God is still able and willing to work through me, even as he works with me and on me. In fact, to my Bible-believing, inerrantist evangelical friends, I pointed out, oh, yes, the Book of Mormon admits its weakness. And I wish the Bible had to. It would have saved many a soul from what I call brittle belief and would have allowed them to develop flexible faith instead. My doctoral dissertation is on Thomas Paine's anti-biblicism. Not only did I read The Age of Reason, but I read everything that arch-skeptic ever wrote on any subject. And it's amazing as he tried to take down the Bible, and he did it more successfully than any other person on American soil ever had or ever has since. He was banking on people with brittle belief. He was banking on an inerrantist view of a Bible that could not admit any human fingerprints, that somehow this was a Teflon text and, and nothing about its 
its mortal makers would get in the way of anything. And when Thomas Paine could point out the slightest error, any potential fault, then what he had portrayed as a house of cards all came crashing down. And people found themselves throwing out the baby with the bathwater, to borrow that phrase. That people found themselves jettisoning the Bible as a whole because they recognized some human fingerprints. Like I said, we, are all, we all have feet of clay. And we are going to need a God who is willing to work with us and through us and on us and in us as he gradually shifts the center of gravity within us all from humanity to divinity. The condescension of Jesus Christ himself, the incarnation of Christ, suggests a fusion of human and divine. The Book of Mormon is simply admitting that it is its own kind of incarnation along the same lines. And again, if God is going to work in us to do something similar, then I'm grateful for a God that recognizes faults, admits them in us, but still is willing to save us. And he saves the, the story of the Book of Mormon. It's an incredible thing. Now, if we have read the title page, in our book, we can now turn and see the introduction. It would not have been in this one that Samuel Smith was passing out. This was written more recently. And from here, I want to just give you some things to think about as you study this this week with your families or on your own, wherever you happen to be. In the introduction, notice the very first paragraph as it describes the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is a volume of Holy Scripture comparable to the Bible. In fact, as I said to my evangelical friends in the South, the Book of Mormon is the best friend the Bible ever had. It's not trying to take away anything from that foundational book of Scripture. If anything, the Book of Mormon recognizes the Bible as pole position Scripture. And it's simply here to help defend it in the face of a skeptical world. So yes, it is comparable to the Bible. Furthermore, it is a record of God's dealings with ancient inhabitants of the Americas and contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. So here's how's this for the analogy. The Bible is to the old world as the Book of Mormon is to the new world. And to see God who is no respecter of persons and loves all of his children, we need to see this as scripture, hand in hand with the Bible, and a fusion of East and West coming into contact over Christ. Now the second paragraph ends with a statement that I think we need to wrestle with for just a moment. At the end of it all, it says, after thousands of years, all were destroyed except the Lamanites. It's been talking about the different civilizations that were here in the New World. And then it says of those Lamanites that they are among the ancestors of the American Indians. Now, what's interesting about that phrase is what it used to read. Because in earlier editions of the Book of Mormon, it read this way. After thousands of years, all were destroyed except the Lamanites. So far, so good. And they are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. And it no longer says that. The interesting thing there, and, and skeptics and enemies of the church have jumped on that before. Uh, again, as one who studies this, it's been interesting to see their complaints. And with DNA analysis and, and the thoughts of 
uh, archaeological evidence, uh, the Bering Strait and people moving from Eastern Asia across the Bering Strait to populate the New World, we have no problem with any of that. In fact, it has allowed us, in some way even forced us, to reread the text much more closely and carefully than we ever had before. You see, in the early days when Joseph translated this, or when an Orson Spencer began reading it, when it speaks of a narrow neck of land, and a land northward and a land southward, the automatic assumption was, oh, this is New World Scripture, and it covers and encompasses the entire New World. The narrow neck must be the Isthmus of Panama, which makes the land northward, North America, and the land southward, South America. And so this Book of Mormon story tells the story of the entire Western Hemisphere. That was the assumption. And so, sure enough, when the Book of Mormon introduction was written, just oh, a few generations ago, that was the assumption that, had still, that still held. And so, of course, these Nephites and Lamanites and, and the, the people that were brought here initially by the hand of the Lord, that, those are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. Now, what's amazing about this, and this is something I've noticed in anti-Biblicism as well, the way people attacked the Bible from the Enlightenment on down forced biblical scholars to look past their early assumptions and study the text far more closely than they had before. And it led to better understanding, clearer views, stronger conviction, the Bible came out stronger rather than weaker because of that. And, and it, it came out truer and more accurate, if you can put it that way. Our understanding was clarified. And what's interesting about Book of Mormon study, I would say the same. That because we were pushed and said, wait a minute, how does that... If every Native American initially comes from a, an old world Hebrew origin, where's the... Where's the ancient Semitic DNA? Thankfully, there is a, an entire gospel topic essay on DNA in the Book of Mormon with all kinds of technical talk about you know, genetic drift and population bottlenecks and all these other kinds of things that allow us to make more sense of, yes, we can honor the Bering Strait and we can honor what archaeology has taught. Then where does the Book of Mormon fit? Well, there's the amazing thing it's forced us to reread the text much more closely, much more carefully. And what have we seen? That the internal geography of the Book of Mormon is much more narrowly constructed. Now, there's, a, there's, there's all kinds of controversy, controversy even within the church of exactly where the, the geography took place. Is it Mesoamerica? Is it the, the Heartland model? Is there, there it's all kinds of possible places Personally, I prefer the ambiguity because, as I've said to my friends, I will take Book of Mormon theology over Book of Mormon geography any day because what's its purpose? Go reread the title page. It's to convince that Jesus is the Christ, not to convince us about the, the specific ancestors of the Native Americans. You understand? To me, there's something powerful, though, about being pushed to reread. It's one of the reasons I'm grateful that our critics have forced us to be more careful. 
and to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Uh, there's all kinds of amazing resources out there that you can wrestle with in both doubt as well as faith to try to navigate these issues yourself. But I am grateful that this newer version of the introduction reflects a more careful study on the part of Latter-day Saints. It is not wise to stick with oh, our earliest assumptions of things. It's good to think and to rethink, to learn and unlearn so that we can relearn in better ways. This is simply creation, fall, atonement, as I've described in other venues. That's growing up in God. And our understanding of the Book of Mormon is growing up in God as well. Now, with that, can I show you the sixth paragraph? Skip ahead. Read it all on your own, please, by all means. But in the sixth paragraph is this famous statement from Joseph Smith that President Benson was referring to when I read his quote at the beginning. He says, Joseph Smith does, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. And a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. That's another statement worth memorizing. Take three things from it and keep it in mind as we study the Book of Mormon this year. Number one, he called it the most correct of any book on earth. And most is relative, not absolute. So again, back to Moroni's admission, if there are faults, well, they're the faults of men. Can we work through those? But it is the most correct book. It was inspired of God. It was written by prophets. It was abridged by prophets. It was passed down by prophets. It was translated by a prophet. And it has been interpreted by prophets ever since. Oh, the prophetic hand that has been on this book from the very beginning is something that no other text can claim. So the most correct. Second thing to keep in mind, he called it the keystone of our religion. And when, when I was a youth and I'd see these object lessons where you put all the stones together into an arch and the, it's the keystone that's the most important one. But I remember them describing this saying, because if you take the keystone out, then the arch crumbles. And as a punk teenager, I would always think to myself, well, wouldn't the arch crumble no matter which stone you took out? I mean, you can take out one of these side ones. It's not going to like float in the air. Every single one of them is important, right? And since then, I've thought more about it and realized, yeah, I was right. All of the keys, or excuse me, all of the stones are important. Then what makes the keystone so key? Well, in essence, it's the one that bears the most weight and then distributes that weight throughout the rest of the arch. So yes, every stone is important. Every principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything we have in the restoration needs to be there to complete the whole. But what is the load-bearing stone of it all? And that's the Book of Mormon. It, if that, President Benson said it's the keystone of the, of the gospel, it's the keystone of our testimony, it's the keystone of our witness of Jesus Christ, it bears weight. And especially when people are attacking the church, that's why they try so hard to dislodge the Book of Mormon because if that one falls, then what do we have to, what will bear the weight of the restoration? I actually got an email from an old student of mine years after I taught him. 
He was in a very demanding uh, graduate program at a, at a prestigious university back east. And he sent me a long email full of his questions and concerns. Oh, as I've often warned my students, <laughs> grad school is often where faith goes to die. And his seemed to be dying. Uh, they specialize in the deconstruction of previous worldviews. And his was not just being deconstructed, it was being destroyed. And he worried about that. And so he reached out with desperation and just, what about this? And I don't understand that. And it was just this slew of questions. But the part that struck me strongest was at the end of his email when he said, all of this might sound final. As if to say, it might, you read this and it, you get a sense that I'm on my way out. That I can't reconcile all these things and so forget it, I'm just, I'm leaving. But he said, all of this may sound final, but it isn't. And then he explained why in a single sentence. The Book of Mormon has quite the hold on me. And that statement from that former student of mine has stuck with me ever since. The Book of Mormon has quite the hold on me. It was still functioning as keystone. And though so many rocks had been reduced to rubble, somehow that that part of his testimony was still bearing weight and still holding it up. There to me is, if we can, I've talked, my, my, my students care less about arch construction than they do about rock climbing. Uh, there's some amazing rock climbing places around BYU. And I've asked them, Describe, take the keystone comment and translate it, interpret it, in terms of rock climbing. And we've talked about anchor bolts that are sunk into the stone. And if you can clip into those, you're not going to fall. Well, actually, I take that back. You might fall, but you won't fall all the way back to the ground. That anchor will hold you. And as you're going free climbing beyond the anchor bolt in search of the next one, that's when we're moving forward into the unknown. Places I don't yet understand. Things I, I haven't wrapped my head and heart around yet. And there's a danger there. But there's also the exhilaration of new exploration and reaching heights you've never been. That's part of growing up in God too. Think about all the anchor bolts you have in a lifetime of living the gospel. And if something... If you slip, if you fall, which of those anchor bolts will hold you? The Book of Mormon as the keystone, as the chief anchor, is one that we need to be anchored to. You with me? Go out and rock climb, and hopefully this will start to make sense. The third and final aspect of that Joseph Smith quote I want to focus on is when he said that we get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Notice he said it's abiding by its precepts, not just having the book, not just studying the book, but living what it teaches. The Book of Mormon is thus pointing beyond itself to a particular lifestyle known as Christian discipleship. And it's by following the example of Jesus Christ that everything changes. The Book of Mormon is pointing us in his direction. It's not pointing us back at itself. We'll see that repeatedly as we study the text. 
In fact, I looked up in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. It's so serendipitous that the first American dictionary uh, written by Noah Webster came out in two years before the Book of Mormon emerged. So you want to see what the words meant. We, can't, we don't have a dictionary of Reformed Egyptian. But you want to see the translation and what it meant in Joseph Smith's mind. Now here from Joseph's statement, when he refers to precepts, this is how Noah Webster defined precepts. Any commandment or order intended as an authoritative rule of action, but applied particularly to commands respecting moral conduct. A more modern definition reads, a general rule intended to regulate behavior or thought. So that's what we're looking for in the Book of Mormon. How do I abide its precepts, its general rules of morality? How does the Book of Mormon teach me to think? How does the Book of Mormon teach me to behave? Because if I will live a Book of Mormon life, then I'm living a Christian one. And I will draw closer to God through that process than anything else I try. Again, those final emails from my students were so astonishing to see not just that their minds had expanded so that they could pass the final, but rather they felt more prepared for the only final exam that really matters knowing that they'll be judged by a savior they've come to know and come to be like in their thoughts and in their behavior. That's what we're looking for this year, okay? Now, I, one last thing. If you fast forward to the very last paragraph of this introduction, it commends, the second to last paragraph talks about Moroni's promise and commends it to every reader. Pray about this book, ponder its message, Ask God if it's true, and he will reveal by the power of the Holy Ghost that it is. We'll talk more about exactly what the Spirit is confirming when we get to Moroni 10, 12 months from now. But if that's the second to last paragraph, read the last one. It says, Those who gain this divine witness from the Holy Spirit will also come to know by the same power that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and prophet in these last days, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom once again established on the earth, preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah. Now, I've always loved that paragraph, and I've often heard missionaries use it. And I, if I remember correctly, I used it the same way myself 30 years ago in Puerto Rico. As if it were the first of a line of dominoes. And if you could just get that first domino to fall, then the rest would all fall forward in quick succession. As if to say, once you know the Book of Mormon is true, then you know all these other things. You can safely assume that Joseph Smith's a true prophet, because how would, why would God reveal true scripture to a false prophet? If the book's true, then its translator is true. And if Joseph Smith is true, then what's the next domino that falls? Then there's this line of succession showing that every prophet in his wake has been a true prophet of God. In fact, it, it leads to a testimony of Russell M. Nelson as we speak. Uh, somewhere along that line, the, the, the domino of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will fall in the direction of solid truth. Because again, why would God reveal a true book of Scripture to a false prophet in a false church? No, if the book's true, then everything else is too. Does that sound familiar, the way you've heard it or perhaps taught it yourself? Well, I had an interesting conversation with a skeptic. I have a lot of those. Uh, I'm amazed by the people that thankfully feel comfortable 
unloading their doubts and questions and concerns on me because I'm not, I don't judge them for it. I don't condemn them for it. It's just an open conversation. I want to understand the questions they have. It was uh, Bill Gates that said, the greatest source of information you'll ever have is your unhappy customers. And I meet a lot of unhappy customers. I'm learning a lot about how they view the church, how they view the gospel, how they view the Book of Mormon. But how do they view that domino analogy? As a pretty flimsy foundation for faith. One conversation I'm remembering clearly, they basically said, wow, everything is hanging on that one thing. And the way they described it was, one moment of elevated emotion and confirmation bias that you think is a confirmation from God that the Book of Mormon is true, and then everything else hangs on that one? Wow, that's putting a lot of weight on a very, oh, a very small nail that you've stuck in drywall. You didn't even find a stud. Now, I took that complaint and that concern and tried to swallow it down. It felt a little reductionist to chalk up spiritual experience to mere elevated emotion and confirmation bias. But I understood where he was coming from. If you haven't felt the Holy Ghost for a while, then yeah, it's easy to reduce it to those terms. But what if it is a true spiritual experience where you know God has parted the veil and taught you truth in a way that is undeniable? where it is not, it's not a, a, a nail, a, a flimsy nail in the drywall. But as Isaiah said, it is a nail in a sure place that you can hang every weight upon and it will hold. But I appreciated his concern that if you know this one, fine, I'll even, let's even assume that happened. Let's say you have a solid, true, God-given testimony of the Book of Mormon. If everything else is just an assumption based on that, who's to say that Joseph was a true prophet when he translated it and then became a false prophet later on? Or that the church fell apart at some point and the church isn't true? That's the, that's the point that they're trying to make. And what amazes me about that concern, which I actually see where they're coming from and can honor that, it's forced me to rethink the domino analogy. And it's forced me to reread the statement at the end of the introduction, which didn't say, if you know by the Holy Spirit that the Book of Mormon is true, then you can safely hold to a bunch of subsequent assumptions. It's not what it said. Reread it. Those who gain this divine witness from the Holy Spirit will also come to know by the same power these other things. In other words, the Book of Mormon is not the first domino. It's the beginning of a lifelong dialogue. Because the Book of Mormon introduces us to a God who wants to engage with us in conversation and in conversion. It introduces us to a God who speaks, who reveals His will, who confirms His truth. As I pondered my own lifetime worth of spiritual experiences, I was able to say to my friend, my conversation partner, it's not just a domino. First of all, it's not a reductionist, elevated emotion. 
It was true spiritual experience, I can't deny. But the same kinds of experiences I had in asking about the Book of Mormon have come as I've asked about Joseph Smith, as I've asked about Russell M. Nelson, as I've asked about the church and way, the way we're living and, and what, what I'm supposed to do with my life. The Book of Mormon taught me that God answers prayers and communicates His will. And that's a skill set. And that's a conviction that has blessed my life so many times ever since. In some ways, the Book of Mormon became my stud finder. It proved that there were studs behind the wall. And I could hang, I could nail true nails in sure places all over and hang all kinds of things. It's not a domino, it's a dialogue. Hold on to that. And learn as we study the Book of Mormon this year how to communicate with God and how to have your questions answered and your prayers confirmed. There's something powerful here. Keep that in mind. Now, I know we are getting low on time. <laughs> I said this was going to be an hour, and I'll, I, I'll keep pushing for it. <laughs> we're, we're going to get closer and closer. This is going to take practice for, to wean me off of four-hour episodes. But can I just say a few other things about the witnesses and their testimonies? and about the testimony of Joseph Smith, because those are the other things that I hope you will study on your own this week before we ju jump into I, Nephi next week. Let me just say this about the three and eight witnesses. This is one of my favorite examples of early skepticism, because Mark Twain had a field day with early Mormonism. I mean, he's a, he's a comic iconoclast. If you, think he treated the, or if you think he mistreated the Book of Mormon, that's nothing compared to how he, he blasted the Bible. Uh, he, he called religion uh, soul butter and hogwash and, and pulled no punches in making fun of religious belief. He actually is one of the very few people I can think of that he seems to have opened the book and actually read some of the inside. Again, knowing Mark Twain, he was looking for comic material. But in roughing it, he did reproduce a lot of the content of the Book of Mormon, which I thought was pretty amazing. Either that he was just trying to fill pages, right? <laughs> yeah, word count. But he did say this when he stumbled across the witness of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. In the, in the original copy of the Book of Mormon, by the way, open the very first page and you see the title page that we've studied already. And if you're the type, like my daughter, that as soon as she gets a book, she looks at the end and wants to see how it ends, if you're perusing this and just want to see, oh, is there an index? Is there something at the back? What do I look at? In the original, it ended with the witness of the three witnesses, or the testimony of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. And that would have been an interesting thing to look at and think, wow, okay, there are other people that are signing off on this. But what, interest is, interests, or what, what interested Mark Twain was he, as he looked at the names of all the witnesses, how many of them ended in Smith and how many of them ended in Whitmer? And his thought was like, wait a minute, this seems to be a family business, or in this case, a family fraud. And you just gathered your own siblings and your dad and some family friends and kind of, let's keep it in the family when we talk about these things. And the way Mark Twain said it, when I am far on the road to conviction and eight men, be they grammatical or otherwise, come forward and tell me they've seen the plates too, and not only seen those plates, but hefted them, whew, I'm convinced. I could not feel more satisfied and at rest if the entire Whitmer family had testified. And then he leaves laughing, hoping his readers would laugh along. 
Oh, yeah. You couldn't even get all the Whitmers to sign off on it. You just had to take a select few. Well, if you wanted to hear from more Whitmers, go listen to Mother Mary. And Mary Whitmer will give you a testimony of the Book of Mormon, complete with the ministering of angels, the way the three witnesses got. That's perhaps a story for another day. But I want you to ponder this as you study the words of the three and the eight. Because there's all kinds of skepticism uh, surrounding them. The fact that the three witnesses all left the church at some point, as well as some of the eight, would tell you, according to the skeptics, that see, they didn't have a firm testimony of the Book of Mormon. And yet the irony is, that's the one thing they did have a firm testimony of. In fact, that was the one thing that they never faltered with. They never denied their testimony of the Book of Mormon. If it had been made up... When I was young, I, I was kind of embarrassed that they'd left the church. Like, I hope nobody talks to me about that, because, that, yeah, that's, that's an argument for the opposition. And yet, the more I understand it, the more grateful I am that they did leave. I'm grateful that most of them came back. But their departure from the church and their rejection of Joseph Smith didn't lead to their rejection of the Book of Mormon, which means that that part of their testimony was undeniable even when everything else seemed to be. Again, it's not just a domino, okay? But the interesting thing there is when they would have had every reason to knock out the keystone and say it was a falsehood from the very beginning, they couldn't do it. Go read, oh, the books and articles about the three witnesses from Richard Lloyd Anderson, the church's expert on that topic. Uh, and it's amazing to see the strength of their testimony and the strength of their characters. More recent anti-Mormonism wants to paint the, them all as religious rubes, as, oh, spiritual enthusiasts, that can't really be trusted, and yet talk to their friends and their neighbors outside the church. And almost to a man, they will bear witness of the character of Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer and Martin Harris as upstanding citizens, as men of their word, as absolute integrity. And it's amazing to read their testimonies with that in mind. What did they see? What did they hear? What did they experience? And as a result, what did they know? Ask yourself those questions as you study their words. I'll also just point this out. In section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says He speaks to the mind and the heart. It's one of my favorite contraries. Uh, for you newcomers, I'll talk about proving contraries often. It's just living with paradox. that There's two halves of the whole. And though they don't seem to fit well together, once you have the eyes to see, it's like, whoa, they have to coexist. Uh, you can't have the one without the other. It's the yin and the yang. Okay? It's the paradox of life. And Joseph called them contraries that we have to wrestle with and prove. Well, section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants describes the epistemological contrary at the base of, of all truth. And epistemology is a fancy word that just means how do we know what we know? And how can we know anything? Well, God says mind and heart, thoughts and feelings, ideas and emotions, 
And most of us seem to be more naturally wired for one or the other. Are you more rational or are you more intuitive? Do you go with a gut feeling or do you think things through? Ideally, there is a combination of the two. And a feeling that starts to make sense in the mind. Or a thought that starts to feel right in the heart. So mind and heart. Uh, later in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord will say that we need to seek learning in two ways. By study and also by faith. Study is more head. Faith is more heart. In the New Testament, Peter spoke of giving a reason for the hope that is in you. Can you hear the contrary there again? Give a reason. There's rational. There's the head. For the hope, there's spiritual. There's the heart that is in you. And what I love about the experiences of the three witnesses, as compared to the experience of the eight witnesses, is there you see heart and mind side by side. For the three witnesses, it was an intensely spiritual experience. It was not completely up to them, nor up to Joseph. They had to make themselves worthy of an experience that included an angelic visitation and hearing the voice of God bear witness of the truth of these things. It was an experience that they could not conjure up on their own. They even say that. This was shown to us by the power of God, not of man. This wasn't, Joseph couldn't pull this off on his own. There was an outside agency involved, and it was divine. We had to prepare ourselves spiritually for a spiritual experience unlike any other. And because we received it, we know and bear witness. Compare that to the eight witnesses. And it is so much more rational, empirical, non-supernatural, non-miraculous. It's just Joseph gathers the eight and says, here's the plates. Do you want to feel it? Do you want to heft it? Do you want That's the word that Mark Twain made fun of. Do you want to turn the leaves and look at the engravings? The way they even describe it, it's they were very careful. They didn't just kind of make certain assumptions going, yep, this must, have been, this must be Reformed Egyptian. No, they said it, those engravings definitely have the appearance of, of ancient writing. And I, I can't take this down to a, a metallurgy shop, uh, I, uh, the assay office, but it sure looks like gold. It, their testimony is very interesting because it's cautious, it's careful. It's not jumping to conclusions, but it is saying what is before the naked eye that they can handle with their own hands. And they bore witness that whatever else it means, we know Joseph has these plates. This is not something, some figment of his imagination. Whatever is coming out by way of wording, I, I can't speak to. But there was something in Joseph's own hands that he let us put in ours. And what amazes me when you juxtapose the three witnesses and the eight, there you have heart and mind. There you have by faith and also by study. Depending on what type of person you are and how you're wired, you might, be gra you might gravitate toward the eight witnesses. That might be the experience that you need. I need more rational evidence. I want em empirical proof, if, there's, if there is any. 
I want to hold things and heft things, and I want things to make sense to the rational mind. Good. It's a great approach. To others that are on the three witness side, if you're more intuitive, if you're more, it, you, it, you feel things in your gut, and that's how you make decisions, and they tend to be right, because you felt certain things that you couldn't explain. Those of you that are more wired towards spiritual things and sometimes get frustrated with your partner that is on the other side of the, of the spectrum, it's interesting how many couples I meet where the husband is head and the wife is heart. Sometimes it's vice versa, but usually it's that. They tend to get gendered. Those, those qualities get gendered male and female. It's unfair to both sides since men feel and women think too, obviously. But it's interesting to see people that almost gravitate to one extreme at the expense or the exclusion of the other. Well, if you're a three witness that married an eight witness or vice versa, I believe that at the end of the day, God wants us to prove the contraries and embrace both sides, both halves of the whole. And so as we study the Book of Mormon this year, please engage your head fully. Think. Thy mind, O man, must stretch as wide as the utmost heaven, Joseph said. You're going to have to think hard about these things. And to make sense of literary structures and historical backgrounds and, and the storyline that weaves in and out throughout this history, it's incredible. It will require your deepest thought. So eight witnesses, come. Help me heft this, because this book is heavy. At the same time, may we prepare ourselves spiritually for miraculous experiences. Maybe not seeing angels and hearing the voice of God, but feeling the power of the Holy Ghost change us in unmistakable ways. I am grateful for both of these sets of witnesses. They speak to two sides of the issue. Together, those two halves make a whole. You with me? And then the final thing that I'll, that I'll send your way. And this is just an invitation to study the testimony of the prophet Joseph. I mean, if you turn a page, we saw, the we saw the title page. We then see the introduction. We read the witness of the, th the testimony of the three, the testimony of the eight, and then we end with the testimony of the prophet Joseph. That goes on for several pages, so that will, you'll get some good reading there this week. Uh, we studied it together. So much of this comes out of Joseph Smith history. And so if you want me to go through it verse by verse and line by line, uh, I can link the video to the end of this one so you can see that. Okay, uh, it's all from Joseph Smith history. But if I could just invite and encourage you to read it with an eye to personal application. Not as if you were Joseph Smith having the visitation of the angel Moroni, but rather if you were you, that should be easy, you are, seeking a spiritual experience with your Book of Mormon study this year. Okay, that, that's all I ask. Go through the lines and see what might be applicable. I'll give you a few hints. For example, while I was thus in the act of calling upon God, I discovered a light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday. How might you apply that? Well, start the process. Call upon God, seek his light, and as you go through this year of study, see how the light increases. You may not ever get to a point where you know with 100% surety 
Oh, the exact location of Zarahemla. However, if you can sense a difference in illumination, you'll know what direction you've moved from where you started. And if your light grows brighter and brighter, in fact, until it goes beyond that of noonday, beyond what, would, what your natural sight would be able to experience, that will tell you something about the Book of Mormon. You will see things more clearly than you ever have before, if we can study this right. Or how about this? Notice the description of the angel Moroni, and then look to apply these ideas to yourself. He's described as having a robe with a whiteness beyond anything earthly I had ever seen. Can you picture greater purity coming from your Book of Mormon study this year? Joseph said his arms were naked a little above the wrist. And I love that because I'm one who prefers to roll up my sleeves because there's work to be done. I love the thought, the angel, even the angel Moroni had his sleeves rolled up. Uh, Joseph, it's time to go. And if you're prepared to act on these precepts, then yeah, you better have your sleeves rolled up too. It also lit, Joseph also describes the angel as having bare feet. And with that, think of Moses told to take the shoes from off his feet because the ground he was standing on was holy. That was the message he got when he turned aside to see a bush that seemed to be burning and not consumed. You will see all kinds of burning bushes in your scripture study this year. Words or phrases that just give off a godly glow. And if you'll turn aside to see them, if you'll pause what you're doing and think harder, oh, you'll find yourself barefoot before long because you'll sense the sacredness of the ground you're on. Finally, when it says that Joseph, that the angel Moroni had his robe was open to the point that he could see into the angel's bosom, I love the thought of the Book of Mormon exposing my heart in ways that nothing else will. That God can see what I really think and feel about things. I can see my own self more clearly. This book will raise your level of self-awareness if you let it. And God will see your heart just like you can. There is so much more that you'll see if you'll just go slowly through Joseph's words. Pay attention to, for example, about what Moroni says to Joseph about the work God has for him. And since this year in our, in our study, if God has some work for you to do too, or one of my favorite letters that keeps appearing, some beautiful alliteration in Joseph's words, pay attention to the M words that describe Joseph's reaction to the angel. Because it's words like marvel and meditate and muse. And that sounds like deep scripture study instead of just skimming the surface. As we study this year, especially on your own time, you'll have more of that. <laughs> marvel over what you read. Just allow a sense of awe to descend upon you as you wrestle with these words. Meditate on them. Think about them more. It's not just your eye going back and forth across the page. It's not just speeding up the, the, the sound on your audio version. It's meditating and it's musing. It's thinking hard 
about these things. With that, I think I'm ready to leave you for the week. I think I'm ready to turn you loose on some amazing preliminary words before we get into actual scripture. Uh, I would even say this. Pay attention what Joseph does. Do you remember the, the moment when the angel Moroni, he, having already appeared to Joseph three times at night, the next day he's out working in the field and he just can't work. He can't. He's, sorry, Dad, I spent, had an all-nighter with an angel. He couldn't say that. It was like, Dad, I just... He couldn't even climb the fence without collapsing, right? Dad's like, man, you're worthless to me out here in the field. Go home and rest up, son. Uh, and the angel appears a fourth time and tells him, go back and tell your dad what really happened. Hmm, what had... Why hadn't, why hadn't Joseph explained these things before? Was there some skepticism on his father's part? Maybe. But what amazes me is his dad's reaction. In fact, it's pretty amazing to see the parallels because right after the first vision, he goes and talks to his mom. And right after the angel Moroni's visits, he goes and talks to his dad. And what's interesting for me as a parent is the chance to ponder, am I the type of parent that my children would trust their deep, deepest spiritual experiences with? Am I the type of conversation partner, what parent or no, or not, am I the type of conversation partner someone could come and ask their most troubling questions? That they could come and tell me that they think I'm wrong, like Joseph said to his mother. Or I've got some things to explain to you, Dad, that you might sound crazy. Can we be that kind of person? That kind of parent? That kind of partner? That kind of friend? I hope so. I'd also encourage you to look closely at what Joseph does to finally obtain the plates. For him, it was literal. For us, it'll have to be symbolic. But what might it mean for us to move some earth away? What might it mean for us to leverage something? For us to be able to unearth or to get access to something that might be hard to come by? What might it mean to be responsible for these things? To give a little exertion, his words, not mine, to be able to obtain these plates. Oh, my friends, I'm looking forward to some exertion on our part. And I pray that, that you're willing to roll up your sleeves and to move some earth and to dig deep to be able to find the, the truths that God has, God has waiting for you. When Joseph finally took the plates, he realized that opposition began to soar. He talks about this in the introduction as well, or in his testimony. And you might find the same. Remember, if there's greater power that comes the moment you begin a serious study, then you're probably going to feel some of the power of the opposition too, because the adversary does not want you to feel power to resist his temptations, to avoid his deceptions, to stay on God's straight and narrow path. So, barring the language of Paul and the related teachings of Jeffrey R. Holland, Please do not cast away, therefore, your confidence. If you feel called to this book of Scripture, if you feel the nudge to study it in ways you never have before, then get past the opposition. It'll come. 
get past whatever temptations to turn your time in other directions and give the Book of Mormon the time it deserves. My friends, I'm excited for this. I hope you are too. I hope that the time we spend together will be life-changing. I know that it can be. Speaking from personal experience, I testify of the power that comes into our lives the moment we begin a serious study of this book. And since this moment has begun for us, bring on the power. And may it change you forever. That's my prayer.